Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, everybody. Before we begin the show, we want to share a podcast with you that we're loving right now and that we know you're going to love too. It's called Future Hindsight, and it's a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. The podcast is hosted by Mila Atmos, and each week on Thursdays, she shares her in-depth conversations with changemakers. Their 16th season out now is all about the social contract, its history, and investigating what it means for society today. If you're looking for more ways to get involved, this is definitely the podcast for you. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Robbie, how goes uh, the lost debate? You, you seem to be upsetting people on both sides. Congratulations on that. Yeah, I think less so by the week. You know, like the first week we were explicitly targeting extreme right wing YouTube channels. And so it was fun to mix it up and and get a little bit more of a sense of the kinds of ideas that are dominant on that side of the aisle. Uh, Whereas now we're kind of in the middle of like kind of more moderate to left leaning uh, audiences who are less angry. But uh, it's been great. You know, it's, it's basically like doing this pod every day, which on the positive side means I'm steeped in the news on the negative side it's I'm steeped in the news and I, <laughs> yeah. I I know way too much about what Ben Shapiro thinks every day uh, or what the young Turks think every day and so I'm I'm just living the polarization Jason don't be jealous oh, yeah you gotta you gotta take a break from that occasionally oh my gosh all right well uh, for people listening just a reminder um, this Thanksgiving we're looking for listeners who want to speak to us on the show leave us a voicemail if you're interested we'll do it in the next few days we'll sit with you here on zoom and we'll we'll help you plan out uh, how you're gonna approach Thanksgiving dinner and, and some arguments that are gonna come up and then we'll play that for everybody so that they're prepared. So 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. Give us a call if you think that listener should be you. Ravi, tell us what's going on out there. Jason, it's Infrastructure Week. Finally, we passed the $1.2 trillion bill that invests tons of money in roads, bridges, modernizing public transportation, investing in rail, electric charging stations, replacing lead pipes, upgrading the power grid. I mean, tons of good stuff in here. This is exactly the kind of bill that Biden should be in the business of passing and Democrats should be in the business of passing. Notably, though, not all Democrats voted for this. There were six Democrats who voted no and 13 Republicans who voted yes. So, Jason, you could take those bipartisans to the bank, man. Yeah, that's right. You take those bipartisans and you cash them right at the bank. Uh, which anyway, um, that's a little that's a little joke to reward people who've inside been joke. listening. Every inside week. joke yeah. to the longtime listeners. So um, you know, it's funny. I, I there's two sides to this whole thing that you know the Republicans who voted for it, the Democrats who voted against it, and I watched the massive reaction on both sides. Let's start with the Democratic side. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of people who are mad at folks, members of the squad, uh, is I believe how people like to refer to it, who voted against this. And now they voted against it because they said, you know, they wanted to maintain leverage for the other bill or they wanted it to go farther. So they were making a statement and a lot of people are mad at them. And I don't know, I served in a legislative body where I, I wasn't in the majority, but I got to watch the majority up close. And also, even as a member of the minority, there were times when my vote counted a lot. And look, you go to leadership and you're like, hey, do you have enough votes for this? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and vote no. Like, 
That's it's clear that that's what happened is that they worked it out with Pelosi. Now, would Pelosi have rather they voted yes? Probably. But like, I, I don't get the sense that they were going to vote the same way had there not been enough votes for it to pass. Like there was a th- those votes on the Democratic side. I don't know what your read is. My read is those were a political statement. Yeah, I'm not sure. When I think of the squad, I'm of two minds. One is they're right that they didn't have confidence that Manchin and Cinema and those folks would be at the table for the Build Back Better bill. And that's the Build Back Better bill is a priority, uh, especially for these more progressive members, uh, the squad. So I understand their logic there. Their explanation, I wasn't into their explanation, which was that we can't promise things and then only deliver part of it because then I'm like, well, if everybody voted no on this bill, we wouldn't deliver any of it, you know, because basically they're saying we, if we're going to say we're going to replace lead pipes, we need to replace all of them, et cetera. But I'm like, well, perfect can't be the enemy of the good. We need to do something. And this is like historic levels of infrastructure spending. And I, I didn't really hear too many progressive critiques of the substance of this other than it was not enough. Like I, I wasn't hearing a lot of substantive critiques to say like the things that we're investing in are bad things to invest in other than like few of these things like carbon capture, which we've talked about before, which are, you know, nuanced debates. I, I spent more time thinking about the GOP votes because my congresswoman in Staten Island voted for this bill and it's good politics for her because her district, because of redistricting is going to get more democratic and there's tons of stuff in here for New Yorkers just because of the way that the formula works. So Amtrak, roads and bridges around New York, the you know tunnels, et cetera. I think New York and New Jersey, like six of the 13 uh, GOP votes were from New York and New Jersey. Here's what I don't get. When I saw those, those Republicans vote, I assumed initially that it was like with the Democrats. I assumed that they had gone to their leadership and their leadership had said, look, you're in tough districts. I mean, for instance, you know, your congresswoman, you're in tough in a tough district. You should vote for this. And I also assumed like, who would care, right? I mean, it's an infrastructure bill. Like, it's they didn't they didn't vote for like reproductive rights. I mean, they didn't vote for something that's that's a wedge issue, uh, or that it, it would be you know polarizing for their caucus. So I this reaction where they're like their caucus wants to like excommunicate them is shocking to me. Yeah, and Trump attacked them and. I am not sure because a lot of these are retiring members. You know, they obviously have their own logic, but but the people running for re-election like Maliotakis, to me, I, I think it's just, I my read on it is individual politics. People looking at it like, look, I'm more afraid in the very rare districts like Maliotakis where she's more afraid of her general election opponent than primary opponent, which is um, it's such an endangered species at this point. This is good politics for them to say, all right, this is, you know, there's not a lot that that you can be caricatured on the right on in this bill other than just supporting Joe Biden. And at least in the district I know best, which is Staten Island, voting for this bill is not enough, in my opinion, to, to get you beat in a primary. And it certainly is a good talking point to say, I, Nicole Maliotakis, ran on doing common sense things to help Staten Island, and this is one of those things. And you could point to hard things that are going to get done um, in a place like that. So in that sense, it's good politics now. There's another part of this, which is Republicans could be thinking that if they if they pass this bill, it kills Bill back better. And they may be right. I'm not sure. It, it's very possible that Manchin and Cinema got what they wanted, which is this infrastructure bill. And they're they were already squirrely before this. I can only imagine they're going to get more squirrely after this. Yeah, that could be. But I can't imagine that it's these, you know this handful of Republicans that came up with that and like McCarthy didn't. And, but what, what really, I guess what gets me about it is, is that like, I mean, and I'm not saying anything that anybody else hasn't already been thinking, but that I guess I thought that infrastructure was boring enough that it wasn't going to be something that caused people to like lose their minds, but like them characterizing this as, as socialism, like who makes money on doing this stuff. Like, I mean, it's, yes, I guess it's socialist to build roads, but it's not like there's a, who starts a company that's like, I'm going to build roads. I will receive no money when people drive on the roads. I'm going to also build public transit. I will never even break even on public transit. I'm going to build, I'm going to like 
improve pipes and sewers and stuff under your house for which I will never receive a return on it. Like, I don't understand how it's socialism that hasn't always existed because there's no like for-profit industry to do these things. Yeah. And like to be clear, there are things, you know, Mississippi, for example, a state I spent a lot of time in. There's weird stuff that happens with infrastructure, like the, the, the contract goes to the powerful you know, company or whatever. But putting that stuff aside, that's not their critique of this. It, the socialism label is not going to land on this bill. This is public goods. Everybody, I think people don't look at bridges, tunnels, pipes and say that is government run, you know, like that's runaway government. You know, they could quibble with, you know, how efficient Amtrak is or whatever. But this is the stuff that's popular and it's usually one time expenses. So longtime listeners will know I'm I'm kind of a, a, I'm, I'm more worried about the deficit than most people, especially most politicians. This is the kind of stuff I support because even though it wasn't completely paid for, it's one time expenses that are investments in the future. Right. So it's not recurring expenses that will continue to grow over time and that we're on the hook hook for forever, right? These are the kinds of things that even people who are fiscally conservative would support, you know, if they believe that that our infrastructure is crumbling, which I think it's hard not to believe that. Here's the other direction they're going to go. Like, so they've tried like the socialism thing. It's not going to work. So what they're doing is they're they're just trying to make this yet another example of the left making everything about race. And that's why you've seen this stuff, you know, where... They're asking Pete Buttigieg in press conferences, like, well, how how is equity and, and racism even a consideration? And which I thought he gave a great explanation on. As to where we target those those dollars, you know, I, I'm still surprised that some people were surprised when I pointed to the fact that uh, if a highway was built for the purpose of di- dividing a white and a black neighborhood, or if an underpass was constructed such that a bus carrying mostly black and Puerto Rican kids uh, to a beach, or it would have been, uh, in New York was, was designed uh, too low for it to pass by, that that obviously reflects racism that went into those design choices. Um, I don't think we have anything to lose by confronting that simple reality. And I think we have everything to gain by acknowledging it and then dealing with it, which is why the reconnecting communities, that billion dollars, is something we want to get to work right away. But this is their thing. Like I saw Ted Cruz had a had a tweet that, you know, if you if you take it at face value and you don't know the facts makes us seem pretty ridiculous, which he was like, oh, the roads are racist now. Everyone's racist, including the roads. Yeah, Pete was right about this. I had a debate with one of my colleagues yesterday about this who was kind of poking fun at Pete. But my point was he described something that anybody who's a student of history in New York would know, which is that there's this guy named Robert Moses who built public works explicitly at times to exclude people. Uh, and so he would he would build like an overpass that was short enough so it would block buses, but not cars, so that people go to the beach, but it would keep out the quote-unquote riffraff, right? These are things that had a real effect, and Pete is right about that. Now, my critique of Pete, who I, I like as a, as a human being, is that sometimes he's too intellectual on this stuff, because like I, I want him to use today examples, right? Like now, give me the statement about what, is happening today because I'm thinking about the Yuri's of the world, like my brother, who's like, well, what? I wasn't there for that. So I want a little bit more of like, now what today? What's the thing happening today that we need to solve? He gets there, but I think some of these sound bites are a little frustrating from a political perspective. So we should give our listeners some. So I, I've got one, and while, while I talk about it, you can think of one, which is here in Kansas City, you've got 71 Highway or Bruce R. Watkins Drive, right? So the way Kansas City is laid out, for those who, who are not from Kansas City, which is most of the people listening, uh, you've got the west side and the east side. A lot of a lot of cities have you know a dividing line um, down the middle or, or you know either north-south or east-west um, that is you know, the black and white parts of the city. Uh, in Kansas City, it's Troost, and that's the the dividing line that runs north and south. So basically, the east side is, is the black part of Kansas City. The west side uh, is the white part of Kansas City. And when they initially were going to build a highway that's like a basically an expressway from the southern part of the city um, up to downtown, uh, which makes a lot of sense that you would have that from, you know, the southern suburbs straight to downtown where a lot of people are commuting to work. You know, you were going to put that through the middle of the city, as most cities would, but they didn't. They put it in a way where it is like there's a song by Tech Nine where he refers to it as 71 straight through the hood. And and the idea is that they made it so that nobody has to actually drive through the black part of Kansas City, that you can go straight downtown, that they'll do it in a way 
where it makes sure that no economic stimulus occurs for the black part of the city and that you you just go straight through it as an expressway rather than go through the middle. Like they're not going to cut up the middle of the city where the white folks live. They're going to do it uh, on the east side. That's clearly racist infrastructure. Um, and then I'll give you another one in Kansas City, which is thankfully in the process of being solved by uh, our current council and mayor. And that is that for several years after we got the streetcar that everybody loves and that has been you know written up in the New York Times over the last couple of years, well, the streetcar, which is basically, uh, you know, for tourism and for people who come downtown uh, to hang out, which is mostly white folks um, when they come down on the weekends. Well, that's free, whereas the buses in the city still all cost money. That's changed now. Now we're, I think, the first city in the country to go to um, totally free public transit. But that's an, that's an example of, you know, completely unequal treatment and in infrastructure. Yeah, we have a very similar story. And and. I won't go into too much detail, but same guy, Robert Moses bulldozed, you know, whole neighborhoods to build a cross Bronx expressway, decimated communities. And there's, you know, lower income white communities and, and black communities. And then the the sort of inertia of Moses was stopped when he tried to build a, a highway through uh, Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And uh, it, it took it. It took for him to to want to bulldoze the more affluent, the more white neighborhoods for him to finally be called out on it. And, you know, that that's just unfortunate. And there was so much damage done by the time we got to the point where he was he was ousted. So Pete's right on this. I think like the politics are we got to constantly remind people of what's today. Right. What happens today? And in that case, in the cross Bronx, you know, anybody who's a student of the Bronx, I interviewed the congressman from there, Richie Torres, the other day. They've suffered ever since. So many other problems that they have today, you can you can connect the dot to dots to decisions like that to bulldoze neighborhoods and then build these high rise projects. Well, Jason, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I've been reading a lot of news from across the more extremes of our political world. And because of that, it's more important than ever to meditate. I'm meditating more than I ever have before. And that's why I love Headspace, because they're a convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and just help you get a good night's sleep. And it's all in one app. It makes it easy to catch your breath and make time for your mental health. And it's the most science-backed meditation app in the world, and it proves that meditation works. The study proves that in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Yeah, I have been working my way through the acceptance and gratitude classes, so I highly recommend those. Find some Headspace at headspace.com slash M54 and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available, so go to headspace.com slash M54 today, headspace.com slash M54. So I've had a lot of experience with people in my life who've accumulated considerable debt. And one thing I've learned is it's really hard to get people to tackle the issue because it can seem so enormous. It's daunting. And and I think people are just even afraid to take that first step. And that's why I love Upstart, which is a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan. And it's all online, whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt or funding personal expenses. Over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Rather than looking at credit score alone, Upstart considers other factors like your income, current employment, and credit history to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com majority54. That's upstart.com majority54. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application, upstart.com slash majority54. All right, now for a new segment, which is why is this political? There's all sorts of things that happen every week that tend to go by and we think of them as pop culture or as sports or as entertainment, but really everything seems to be tied up in politics anymore and some of it is very political. And so this week, we're going to talk about Aaron Rodgers. If you don't know, Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback uh, for the Green Bay Packers. If you don't follow football, he's the guy who is not Patrick Mahomes in all of the State Farm commercials. All right. So that's that's Aaron Rodgers. And he is, you know, a future Hall of Fame quarterback who, when asked 
uh, in a press conference uh, earlier this season, uh, have you been vaccinated? He said, yeah, I'm immunized. And then he gave answers like, you know, everybody's going to make their own decision, but that's the choice for me. Very much made the decision to uh, have people believe that he had gotten vaccinated, like the vast majority of NFL players. Turns out he did not get vaccinated. Then he got COVID and he was not able to play this past Sunday. And people are pretty mad at him. Yeah, Jason, I think there are a couple uh, layers to this story. There's the Aaron Rodgers is a person and why this is wrong. I think it's very straightforward. And I, and I find it baffling that anybody would defend this. You know, he lied. Like he, he, he got cute with his answer. He said, I'm immunized. And so many people are focusing on that part of his answer where he like there's like a definition of immunization and the people are trying to say that the homeopathic treatment that Rogers got counts as immunization. So he didn't lie. But they forget that he was asked directly, are you vaccinated? And he said, yeah, I'm immunized. Are you vaccinated? And what's your stance on, on vaccinations? Yeah, I've been immunized. You know, there's guys on the team that haven't been vaccinated. Uh, I think it's a personal decision. I'm not going to judge those guys. So that's just a lie, right? That's a lie. At best, it is what we refer to in the army as a quibble, which we said is just it's just a lie's cousin. I mean, so the, the quibble counted as a lie. It's at best misleading, but I think it's a straight up lie. And this is where I step outside of the this is the stuff we used to talk about with Trump as president. It's like just like take off your political hat, everybody. Is it OK to lie to your coworkers about anything? Right. And then to have your coworkers, which in this case is the press, your teammates in some cases, get in a room with you, assuming that you're that you're vaccinated when you're not and lying to people about things about anything, but especially things with consequences wrong. Like, can we just make it that open and shut? But Jason, that's not what he did. Right. He didn't then apologize for this. He made some statements that were notable, I think. I realize I'm in the crosshairs of the woke mob right now. So before my final nail gets put in my cancel culture uh, casket, I think I'd like to set the record straight on so many of the uh, blatant lies that are out there about myself right now. First of all, I didn't lie in the initial press conference. Uh, during that time, it was a very, uh, you know, witch hunt uh, that was going on across the league where everybody in the media was so concerned about who was vaccinated and who wasn't and what that meant and who was being selfish and who would talk about it. And at the time, my plan was to say that I've been immunized. Um, it wasn't uh, some sort of ruse or lie. It was the truth. Uh, had there been a follow-up to my statement that I've been immunized, I would have responded uh, with this. I would have said, look, um, I'm not, uh, you know, some sort of anti-vax flat earther. Um, I, I am somebody who's a critical thinker. Uh, you guys know me. I marched to the beat of my own drum. I believe strongly in bodily autonomy and the ability to make choices for your body, not to have to acquiesce to some woke culture or crazed, you know, group of individuals who say you have to do something. All right, Jason, uh, there's some buzzwords in there. It talks about the woke mob. I think at some point cancel culture. What I find notable about this is it, it feels to me almost like some of these public figures are using the exact same talking points about this, and they're remarkably on message. You know, like he basically, he turned this into, all right, any consequence I get now, if it's because of some cancel culture, uh, not because of my clear and blatant violation of a policy that is supposed to be applied across the league. I know because my team got fined for this stuff earlier in the year because we have some notable anti-vaxxers on our team who to their credit, are at least honest about it. Yeah, look, yeah, exactly. Like, you got to hand it to, I never would have thought I'd Cole. say this, but yeah, to Cole, Cole Beasley. Beasley. Like, I mean, Shout out the to dude, Cole like, Beasley. he didn't yeah. try to do what Rodgers did. It's funny what this has exposed about Aaron Rodgers, which is that Aaron Rodgers really wants it both ways, right? Aaron Rodgers, if you listen to that, he wants to wrap himself in the victimhood of quote-unquote cancel culture when, by the way, he's not being canceled. Stay Farm standing behind him. NFL, exactly. they fined him $14,000, which to put it in context, CeeDee Lamb got fined $20,000 last week, who's a wide receiver for the Cowboys, for having a shirt untucked. So, like, and, come and, on. And what, Marshawn Lynch, Grace, look this up. Marshawn Lynch was fined $75,000 for not talking to reporters, which if people aren't familiar with that, they will remember the thing that became a meme in pop culture, which is, I'm just here so I don't get fined, which was Marshawn Lynch. Like, 
He got fined $75,000 for not talking to reporters. And by the way, like Rogers lied to the press and he's get he's fined what I, I think somebody showed that the amount of money he makes, uh, if you compare that to the average American take home salary, it is the equivalent of being fined $33. So uh, it, clearly not being canceled. He is held for being criticized. And this is a thing that I want us to work hard to nip in the bud right now because this is becoming a colloquial problem in American culture where being criticized or questioned has become synonymous with being canceled. That That's not being canceled. We, we can have a reasonable and should have a conversation in this country about what people should or should not be canceled for, whether cancellation should be permanent. And that's a conversation we've had on this show. And I think that's a very worthwhile conversation. But but Aaron Rodgers is not being canceled. He's yes. being criticized. He's being questioned. And he wants to rush to victimhood and throw around terms like the woke mob, which is like, come on, man. Like, you're not helping your cause. You're not helping anybody else. There are like, you're, you're devaluing real genuine things out there that the quote unquote woke movement is about. Some of our listeners actually have criticized me for this because I do think there is a cancel culture. I hate the term now because it's so general and abused now, and it makes me feel silly even mentioning it, in part because if you're like me and you actually think there were some people, and uh, there's a decent amount of people who I think I've been treated unfairly just because they express views that are different than the consensus in certain progressive circles that I, I feel like we sometimes shut down those debates too quickly. And if you're like me and you actually think that's a real problem, these these Rogers type appropriations of the term and abuse of the term are, are particularly problematic because then it means that it's impossible to even have the conversation after this. He's doing a disservice to anybody who actually wants to have a serious discussion about uh, intolerance for different views because he's being dishonest about it. Like, and by the way, he should be like if one of my employees lied about their vaccination status, I would fire them. Like yeah. that, you should be canceled for that. <laughs> like, if that's what cancellation is, that's if that's what he means. Like, that's an appropriate consequence for lying to your coworkers about your vaccination status. And yet, nobody, no serious person, is saying like Aaron Rodgers shouldn't be allowed to play quarterback anymore. And no serious person is, you know, I mean, like that's the thing. It's not just that he's. It's not like everybody's tried to cancel him, but they can't, right? Yeah, because that you know, that's more like. Like Dave Chappelle, who we talked about a couple episodes ago, went out and was like, I dare you to cancel me. And people were like, mm, we're really mad. But like American culture is like, no, we enjoy what Dave Chappelle does. So we won't be canceling him. That's not the position that Aaron Rodgers is in. Aaron Rodgers is in a position where hardly anybody is like cancel Aaron Rodgers. They're just like, hey, you don't lie. That's uncool. And he's like, whoa, whoa, trying to cancel me. And that's just not what's happening. Yeah. Chappelle is so notable to come back to that. Because what could go wrong if we go back to that discussion? But yeah, if you right. look at what's happened to him since, he he's, he has said, I think, that he's been canceled because he has this documentary that nobody's going to pick up. Somebody's going to pick up that documentary. He said it's been a very hard week, well, a few weeks. And, well, like, that's predictable, uh, you know, yeah. based on what you said. And you know what? His videos, his, he's uh, Netflix is still trending. His videos online on YouTube are very popular. His shows are being sold out. Dave Chappelle is just fine. Yes, I'm sure it's been a hard few weeks because he said things that were controversial, even in the comedic setting, which we, like in some ways we defended his right to do that. But I'm not on board with this Dave Chappelle has been canceled. People are actually making that argument that Dave Chappelle has been canceled. I think he has even said it. Like he used the term canceled to describe himself. I don't think that's correct. Like he's a very successful guy. He's probably even more successful today than he was a month ago. Well, OK, going back to Rogers for a second, here's what irritates me about this. Him wanting to have it both ways uh, is that on the one hand, he's like wants wants to invoke the woke mob and claim he's been canceled. On the other hand, he wants you to know that he had prepared a follow up answer if he was actually asked, have you been vaccinated? Now, never mind the fact that he was asked. It wasn't a follow up question. He was waiting. The question yes. was, have yeah. you been vaccinated? Notable. Right? Yeah. OK, but put that aside. His statement is, you know, something along the lines of, well, look, you know, what he was going to say was, I'm not some flat earther anti-vaxxer. He wants everybody to know he's not a crazy person. He's not, an, you know, he's none of that. He wants people to know that, right? He still wants to do State Farm, okay? But he also 
uh, then goes on to say, but then I've got all these crazed people who are saying that, I mean, so, so like he wants to say, I'm not a crazy anti-vaxxer, but the people who want me to take the vaccine, they are crazy. Yeah. So you can't, you can't do that. You can't have both like that, that, that is against the rules. You can't do that. That's, that's not how it works. Yet another rules violation for Aaron Rodgers. And now to finish off the, the Rodgers thing, just for fun, Grace pointed out something to us that I enjoyed. So Grace, you want to break down this last clip for us? Sure. So in this clip you're about to hear, Rogers talks about why he was particularly obstinate to the requirement to wear a mask in front of press, which is something that he's gotten a lot of pushback for. And you want me to wear a mask just to shame me that I'm not vaccinated, to continue to perpetuate a story that I'm not vaccinated in, in a room where the only way you can get in that room is if you're fully vaccinated against a virus that I don't have as a non-vaccinated person. So it was my opinion that that wasn't rooted in any science. Every other protocol I followed to the T. What I love about this and hate about this <laughs> is that he explicitly says, everyone in this room is vaccinated against a virus that I, as an unvaccinated person, do not have. But he does have it. He like <laughs> definitely has the virus. Like that is something that we know. The whole point of being vaccinated is that it deeply decreases your ability and likelihood of contracting and spreading. As an unvaccinated person, you're really likely to do both of those things. That's the point. So he's explicitly denying the reality of the fact that he actively has COVID right now. It's just beautiful and infuriating. This also touches on another thing that I find amazing about a lot of people uh, who refuse to get the vaccine. They frequently will say something like, look, what is your problem? You are vaccinated. And it's just like, but when, but that means that you think the vaccine is effective. Why do you not have it? <laughs> you know, this room, like, here's my big takeaway from this Aaron Rodgers thing, which I think is that I think a lot of people had a, like a vertigo when they, they saw him with these statements because they're like, whoa, like this guy's been hiding in plain sight the entire time after having spent some time like examining the Rogan community, for example, and all that is that there's it's. It's unpredictable, like the combination of views that people have. And in some ways, it's, it can be good, right? Because these are people that be pro-legalization, for example. And, and there's a lot of things that they believe that are good. But there's also some very stubborn, wall, like just like walls that go up on certain things that you just cannot move people on. And this is one of those issues. Something that really jumped out to me about exactly how Aaron Rodgers spoke about this is the return to this kind of root in masculinity that I find particularly prevalent in like the Joe Rogan camp, to your point. One, he brings up Joe Rogan explicitly. But two, later on in the same interview, he says, look, if you're afraid of COVID, then maybe the vaccine is right for you. Which roots again in this idea of like, well, only if you're man enough to not fear this, then you have other options available to you. Or the vaccine isn't necessary because you don't live in fear. And something else he talks about that was a real driver behind his hesitancy around the vaccine is this huge piece of misinformation about it having any effect whatsoever on your fertility. Which, if that's just not a totally blatant connection to his own fears of aging, masculinity, virility, and all of that, it's just... To me, it connects with this hyper machismo sense of self that often presents itself in, in almost a sort of God complex. And that through line of like, I alone have the cognitive ability to make these decisions. No one can tell me what to do or give me advice. It's just, it really grates on me because I think it's a really dangerous line of logic that a lot of people are really susceptible to. You know what got me about the whole, I was worried it would make me sterile thing? If you have... Aaron Rodgers platform, and you believe that this thing that the vast majority of American men are putting in their body is going to, the vast majority of men in the world eventually are putting in their body is going to make it so that they can't have children. Well, then you owe it to the species to speak up and be like, hey, there's not going to be any more humans if this continues. Like, that's how I know that's total bullshit. <laughs> like, you got to be sounding the alarm, man. All right. I think it's a good place to end this, huh? 
Good news, I did my food test from Everly Well and Ravi, I can continue to eat cottage cheese because my body, just as I suspected, handles it like a champ. Well, that makes one of us. <laughs> there are certain things in life that are difficult to understand, but knowing how to feel your best shouldn't be one of them. Everly Well can help you learn more about your body so you can finally take control of your health and wellness on your own time. It offers affordable at-home lab tests that give you trusted physician-reviewed results. Choose from tests including food sensitivity, metabolism, sleep and stress, thyroid, and so much more. Here's how it works. Everly Well ships your test straight to your door with everything needed for a simple sample collection. Return the test to a CLIA-certified lab with a prepaid shipping label. Then your physician-reviewed results and insights are sent to your device in just days. Over 1 million people have trusted Everly Well with their at-home lab testing, including the Canders. And for listeners of the show, Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off at-home lab tests at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your at-home lab test. everlywell.com slash majority54. Jason, like your wonderful wife, I'm super competitive. And anytime you put a metric on something, it just makes me so much more excited to do it. And that's why I love Quip. They give you rewards for brushing your teeth. And it's this electronic toothbrush that tracks how and well you brush. And it gives you tips and coaching to improve your habits. And you earn points for brushing daily and bonus points for completing challenges like streaks. And so, you know, maybe when we, we do the fitness group again, maybe we're gonna have to add teeth brushing to our daily activities. I think that's a great idea because I probably could be better. We, we're very excited. We love Quip. I love the little suction cup. You set it down and it just sticks straight up in the air. Anyway, start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today. Go to getquip.com slash majority54 right now to save $10 on a Quip smart electric toothbrush. That's $10 off a smart electric toothbrush at getquip.com slash majority54 spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash majority54. Quip, the good habits company. All right, Ravi, uh, now that we've checked in on things that are political that don't seem political, uh, let's check in on the right. Yes. So as we're sitting here, Kyle Rittenhouse is standing trial for shooting three people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, you might remember that incident. He's a, a young kid who traveled across state lines uh, to Kenosha with, an, with a rifle and mixed it up with some protesters and wound up shooting three of them, two of whom died. And he's actually on the stand right now as we're speaking. And from what I understand, it's getting very heated uh, where the judge has asked the jury to leave multiple times. Even since we've, we've sat here, I've gotten people passing me notes saying that it, that's, it's boiling. Uh, but Ben Shapiro has really worked up over this. So I think a good starting place is to, to go to Ben uh, and, a, and a segment he did, I think, a few days ago where he's framing this trial. So let's play that clip. This thing never should have been in front of a jury. Given the fact that the prosecution case is just a complete crap show here, why exactly was it brought in the first place? And the answer is because we live in a society where the media will not allow a case not to be brought so long as the purported victimizer is of the wrong political persuasion. Okay, there, there is no way that if this were a left-wing person who had shot a couple of Proud Boys in the streets and the video were available like this, that this prosecution is ever brought. It is just too weak a case. We're no longer a country where individual cases are seen for what they are, judged on their fact patterns, judged on their merits. Instead, the outside politics of the players are telescoped into the proceedings. And that is exactly the wrong way to do this, right? Due process of law requires precisely the opposite. We saw this a lot with the Derek Chauvin trial in Minnesota, regardless of what you think of Derek Chauvin's activities that day, and now the man has been convicted of murder. And regardless of what you think of the activities, there is still no evidence in the Derek Chauvin case that anything he did was motivated by racism. It, it didn't matter. It turned into a giant national referendum on whether police across the country were racist, despite the fact there was no evidence that Chauvin himself was racist or had done anything racist as opposed to just egregiously wrong in the confrontation with George Floyd. Now, everything is used as a stand-in for politics these days, and the Rittenhouse trial is just a perfect example of that. Because again, the prosecution has so little a case that they are calling witnesses who are rebutting the prosecution case. If somehow Rittenhouse is convicted here on the basis of the evidence that's being presented, you can only chalk that up to politics because there's literally no way to watch the testimony that's being given and not see that that's a self-defense case. All right, Jason. I've been following this trial pretty closely. And before we kind of break down Ben Shapiro on this, one thing I think is important for our listeners, if you're not following this case closely, is I think you may have certain 
preconceived notions about Rittenhouse and that incident that might not be true. And I think as, as I've gone through this trial, I've learned a lot. And as I've come out the other side, at least as this trial stands today, and we could learn a lot as the defense continues their case. And, you know, Rittenhouse took the, you know, the, the rare step of taking the stand and testifying, which, as you know, is 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 not common, especially if you think you're going to win a case. I think this is going to be not guilty verdict or a hung jury based on the evidence I've seen so far. And I don't think it's going to be not guilty or a hung jury because of something nefarious going on. I just think that as I've seen it, I don't think the prosecution proved its case. And I, and it's, uh, it's hard for people to hear because I think most of our audience is like, yeah, this is a kid who went out and sought violence and you know was carrying around a gun and there's so much suspicious activity in his background to say that this guy was looking for a fight. But uh, the way these trials go is that the judge narrows the scope of what's in front of the jury. And a lot of them are asking the question of just like what happened in this very moment where Kyle Rittenhouse interacted with this protester. And I want people to look at this, the one surviving protester, right, uh, who got ki- who got shot. This is a guy who was carrying a gun, lied to the police after the incident when asked about like, how did his gun come out? He said that it fell out of his pocket. It turns out he pulled the gun out on Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, he didn't have a permit to have that gun. Um, and and then when he was asked on the stand about how he interacted with Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm not going to read the transcript, but it's, it's very damning. Essentially, he says that Rittenhouse only shot him when this protester or whatever you want to call him lunged at Rittenhouse with a gun. Uh, and so... As much as I think people want to see Kyle Rittenhouse go to jail for this, uh, or you know, you hear Ben Shapiro and you don't you don't want to agree with him, you still don't have to agree with everything Ben Shapiro just said. I look at this case and I say, I would be shocked at a guilty verdict based on what I've seen so far. And from what I understand, things are, are continuing to go poorly for this prosecution as we sit here. So I just want to prepare our audience for that. I could be wrong, but I think this is going to be not guilty or hung hung jury. Well, let me start with the fact that where I part with Ben Shapiro here is that even if you take everything he said about the facts of the case at face value, he's the one making it a larger political thing, right? Like, I mean, first of all, it is complete BS to say that if in the same situation, uh, you know, somebody had, I mean, like, for instance, what he's trying to imply is that if a black person had shot two white people who were conservative, they never would have been tried. I'm sorry, uh, that is incorrect. And I offer as my evidence, the entire history of the United States of America, um, because that's just not true. Um, and second, he's the one who on his national right-wing political uh, you know, show is saying, look, isn't it tragic that politics are being injected to all these ca- into all these cases? As you just rightfully pointed out, the jury will only be exposed by the judge will only allow the jury to be exposed to the facts. Part of the reason that the jury has, uh, I'm sure, had to be moved out of the room during these arguments about the testimony of Rittenhouse is because a bunch of stuff that could prejudice the jury would be heard by them there, which could be, you know, generalizations. They could be about political climate or any of those things. And the judge doesn't want the jury to hear those things. So on that Ben Shapiro is clearly wrong and is unfairly injecting politics into this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I depart with Ben Shapiro on that, too, because, you know, I I see this for sure. These cases get politicized by the right. Of course, I don't even need to say this. But, you know, why uh, were the officers not indicted in the Eric Garner case, for example? That that was on video. Why, you know, like there's this guy I know from Staten Island that I recently interviewed. Another case of a lack of indictment um, was a case where a an anti-lockdown uh, business owner ran over, uh, I think it's either a sheriff or a state trooper, um, and that was also on video. And a jury, a, a grand jury in Staten Island didn't indict him for that either. And so uh, these cases get politicized, and I hate that. That's why I'm going out of my way. I'm not going out of my way to like try to try to defend Rittenhouse because it's the contrarian thing to do. It's it's honestly my reading of what I've seen so far. Well, and I don't think you're defending closely. Rittenhouse. I yeah. think you're just being a, a pundit of the trial of what you, you're just trying to predict. It. I'm a believer in due process, no matter what, and I think that no ma- and like even Jeffrey Dahmer is entitled to a trial, right? And so, uh, in this case, 
it's hard to prove these things one way or the other, but these facts are not convenient for the prosecution. And, and I would be lying to our listeners if I thought they were. And and one thing that's interesting about these cases when they happen is that when, when the, the politics happen, what happens is the right wing becomes defenders of due process and the left wing becomes enemies of due process. Like this was like when this term victim, right, the judge had excluded the term victim being used uh, to, to, to describe the people Rittenhouse shot, and a lot of people on the left got up in arms about that. They called it white supremacy, et cetera. And, and I, I said two weeks ago, I said, look, you could hate it, but this judge always does that. So this is like a thing that this judge always does, not specific to this case. And then I talked about a series of facts that people on the left would probably want the standard applied to, which is a case of domestic violence, for instance. Let's say a wife shot her husband. Uh, and in that trial, would you want the defense to be able to describe the guy who was shot as a victim, or would you want that to be left to the jury to decide, right? Like, and this is what gets complicated about legal stuff is like, you have to defend these standards even when you don't love the defendant, right? Like you have to defend due process even in cases when it's hard because that's that's when it really gets tested. Here's the problem is the Wisconsin law, is, if you're familiar with any criminal law statute, it's it has so much to do with the state of mind, right? That's the way the law is written. And the big debate here is, what was Rittenhouse's state of mind at the time he shot people? And was it a was it reasonable? So one of the protesters was, you know, I think it was tacking Rittenhouse with a skateboard or something or or whatnot. All the defense has to do is say that Rittenhouse to prove or at least establish like with some credibility that Rittenhouse felt like he was in fear of his life uh, or his, his physical safety. And the reason why I think he's going to be not guilty or hung jury is because the prosecution is doing a very poor job of poking holes in the defense's arguments about how Kyle Rittenhouse felt that day. That's what these cases are about. And and as long as that continues to be true, the prosecution has rested at this point. So unless they do something dramatic in cross-examination, all they have to do is say this: that he had a reasonable fear for his safety. I think what bothers me about the takeaways from this is two things. One, um, Ben Shapiro is basically making the argument that anytime that there's a uh, criminal trial where you have the possibility of a not guilty verdict because it's not an open and shut case, which by the way, those are the cases that go to trial. Cases that have you know solid, solid, you know, unimpeachable evidence, they don't go to trial. Uh, that 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 therefore means that it never should have been brought to trial in the first place. Like, so if there's a not guilty yep. verdict in this, that means that it never should have been charged. I don't think that that's really how that works. That's the yeah. first takeaway. That's total BS. Um, the second preemptive takeaway- whining, by the way, is what that is. They're preemptively yeah. whining about the outcome of this case. So if this is a not guilty verdict, like, are they going to be like, you know what? Like, we're not the victims we thought. But that's why this framing of it never should have gone to trial is so interesting. Because it's like, even if we get the not guilty verdict, then we're the victims because this never yeah. should have been. The guy shot three people. Come on. And there was there were facts that this judge excluded, including one where Kyle Rittenhouse was on video weeks before this. And it's his point of view saying, I wish I could shoot these people. And he's looking out at, at people saying, I wish I could shoot these people. And this is where I'm, I'm very critical of this judge, is that that, that speaks to state of mind. Uh, and I think if that fact gets into this trial, I would be having a much different take about what this outcome would be, because I think like any competent prosecutor should be able to take that and say his state of mind is one in which he's seeking out danger. He's seeking out these moments. He was almost fantasizing about the idea of shooting people. So that would be relevant when we're talking about whether he thought he was in danger or whether he was excited about the prospect of shooting people. Well, and that that actually brings me to the other takeaway that you're never going to get from Ben Shapiro, but that we should all get from this. And that when it's brought up at Thanksgiving, uh, that you should drive home with people, which is maybe we have too many guns. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe like, maybe we should be playing God. fucking shootout on the streets. You know, like yeah, the protester like, had a had a gun. He had a gun. Why the fuck do so many people have guns? Like. You know, if this were just a fist fight, nobody would be talking about this. Exactly. You know? And that's what it goes. That's what it comes back to. What it comes back to is, is that I'll tell you one thing that we know about state of mind, which is at least two people showed up to that thing thinking I better have a gun because other people are going to have guns. Yeah. And, and that that really goes to I mean, that's our that's that's the problem in America that's causing so much violence. It's like at some point, it's not just like whether to buy a gun or not at some point. That's the self-defense conversation to have, right? Is that if yes. this ends up as a self-defense thing, which, uh, you know, I don't think it should be, but if that's the verdict, 
Well, it's because everybody showed up to that thinking they were going to have to defend themselves with a gun. And the way this should have happened is that if it became violent, a guy got hit with a skateboard, there was a fist fight, and you never heard about it in national news. That's how this used to go. Right. And this is only going to get worse because the Supreme Court is looking at our gun laws right now, and it seems very possible that by the end of this year, or at least the end of the Supreme Court term, they're going to overturn restrictions in places like New York that prevent people from carrying guns around. So like the, the country is going to be Texas, basically, if, if the Supreme Court overturns that law. It's going to be Tombstone, Arizona, 150 yeah. years ago, right? Where, where every murder trial was a trial over whether or not it was self-defense. Right. I mean, we're I mean, that's that's where they're trying to take us. They're trying to take us back to Wyatt Earp days. Right. Where everything is just a question of, well, was it a good killing or not? It is weird. Right. If you step out of it, like what what is going on in this country? You know, you got a kid. This is a kid. Right. How old was he? He was he was under 18. Right. Like like what is going on in our society that young people are even in this situation? Like like he has agency. Right. He's not five. Like this is a huge failure. This dude is walking around, what, Kenosha, Wisconsin, at a protest with an assault rifle and a round in the chamber. There were times when I left, I went outside the wire in Afghanistan without a rifle, where I went with just a pistol, okay? There were, most of the time, went with a rifle and a pistol, but like, there were plenty of times where like, I was going to a meeting and it was not, like, it wasn't going to work to bring a rifle to the meeting, so like, I would conceal a pistol and by the way, I wouldn't put around in the chamber until we rolled out of the front gates. So like he is walking around at a higher level of readiness than soldiers and Marines walked around on the camp I lived in when they were inside the wire of the camp. We didn't we didn't put around in the chamber. We had a magazine in the weapon, the bullets were in the weapon, but it wasn't ready to fire. There was no round in the chamber. That was the rule when you were walking around. Like if you were in the chow hall, you couldn't have a round in the chamber. In Afghanistan, and 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 like we've got lots of people going to protest, going to Walmart at a higher level of readiness. For the second week in a row, our grab and or is a little bit self-serving, but it's because we want to help everybody, which is, again, if you think you'd be a good person for us to talk to on the show uh, to model the, the coaching that we want to do for you about how you can talk to your family at Thanksgiving, then you should give us a call and tell us about why it should be you. 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. As always, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. You should go there now because you'll see a lot of good content from the work he's doing at The Lost Debate. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.